Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, hashtag Real Talk on Clinical Trial Design and Execution. In this conversation, the first, panelists Stephen Harrison, Arizona Liver Health Institute Medical Director Dr. Naeem Alkouri, South Texas Research Institute Medical Director Dr. Rashmi Patil, Louise Campbell, and I, discuss how challenging the numbers for recruitment actually are both in terms of a patient funnel in which screening 10,000 fatty liver patients will likely lead to no more than 150 that might qualify for a NASH trial, and also some specific patient issues that make this funnel so severe. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. I think this is a very important topic, Roger, so thank you for bringing this up. I'm going to start by talking about, you know, some of the misconceptions that I think pharmaceutical companies have when it comes to trials, and then I would like to hear from everyone else. So the first one is that, uh, you know, NAFLD is common, and we have so many patients with NAFLD NASH that you can be selective in your trials and just pick, you know, the best patients. And I think this is uh, not true because, you know, the ideal NASH patient that everyone wants, they need first to have significant disease, so they need to have NASH with F2, F3 fibrosis. They need to have no significant alcohol consumption. They need to have a high BMI, but not too high of a BMI. They cannot lose, you know, more than 5 or 10% of their body weight in the previous six months of being in a trial. They need to have maybe a few medications, but they cannot be on several medications that will be exclusionary. And then uh, they cannot have many comorbidities outside of metabolic syndrome. So if they have, you know, sometimes rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, some of other chronic illnesses that we see frequently and certain trials, they cannot be included. So, you know, the NASH patient that will qualify for trial is, is not a common patient that we see in our clinics. There are so many reasons to exclude them even before we get them to a screening for a clinical trial. So in my clinic, I'll tell you, I have a busy hepatology clinic and patients come to me for two reasons typically. Number one is elevated ALT with suspected NAFLD because of metabolic syndrome or because incidental finding of fatty liver on ultrasound or CAT scan. When when I see them in clinic, I mean, I can tell you, we start by doing a fiber scan to estimate their liver stiffness and steatosis. And about 70% of people I see, they will not qualify for trials because their liver stiffness is too low. So you end up with fatty liver based on the CAP score. But when you look at the stiffness, it's at 4 or 3.5. And automatically, we're not going to look uh, you know, at this patient population for trials. And that's like 65, 70% of people I see. And then, you know, you have people that uh, consume too much alcohol. So whether it's, you know, for 14 drinks per week for women, 21 for men. Uh, that's a common one. Medications, especially specific ones like methotrexate, tamoxifen. Uh, once you're on these, usually you do not qualify for any trials. And then you have people that you approach them about clinical trials and they just say, I'm not interested. And this is not a small percentage. I mean, many people just don't feel comfortable with the concept of trials. So to give you an estimate, I think we end up, you know, if patients coming to clinic uh, to see us for suspected fatty liver, only 5 
5% go into screening for clinical trials. So this is the reality. You have to see 10,000 patients to get 500 to screen for trials in a year. So this is the biggest misconception I deal with uh, when we talk to pharmaceutical companies that you can be selective. And then sometimes you ask them, hey, well, this patient is on this medicine. And you say in protocol, uh, you don't want them to have any immunosuppression, suppressing medications. Is this medication okay? And they're so quick to say no, but I mean, they really don't look at, uh, you know, the degree of immunosuppression. Uh, Are you really suppressing the entire immune system or just one cytokine? So, you know, I just feel like they need to have an open mind that it's not easy to find these NASH patients that qualify for trials. Naeem, that's a great start. So, Rashmi, why don't you take the baton and run with it? What happens next that's a challenge that people wouldn't understand? I think that many of the challenges that we face are really at an education level, like physician to physician education. So, as Naeem mentioned, all of these patients that we're, we're talking about that are excluded from clinical trials because they don't have enough disease or they're on other concomitant medications that would exclude them. A lot of that education, we actually have to uh, do at a physician to physician level in the community. So targeting those patients that are highest risk. So if we took 10 patients with fatty liver, we really want to just look at those two or three that have diabetes that have been on stable meds for three to six months who you know don't have other major cardiac or other you know, extra hepatic diseases. And so I don't think that we spend enough time doing that. I'm a little bit different in that I am a hepatologist practicing in a standalone research institute. So I really can kind of tailor who comes through the doors, but I'm still very similar to Naeem. Even if I have a fiber scan day, there are still many patients that we see that have non-alcoholic fatty liver, but not enough stiffness on the fiber scan. The other patient level concerns that we see again and again are number one, that I feel well. I have fatty liver. You're telling me I have high risk findings, but otherwise I feel well, you know, so why should I be on a clinical trial? Number two, there's a lot of fear around liver biopsy at a patient level. And I would say number three, Three is that there's a general misconception, particularly in the community that I serve, which is 95% Hispanic, that being on a clinical trial is the uh, equivalent of, of basically being a guinea pig. So you have to do a lot of education, not only with the disease state, but also about what it means to be involved and enrolled in a clinical trial. Let me add to that from a slightly different angle. So, so we've talked about identifying a challenge in finding patients that would be willing to do a study and that would have at least a pre-screen criteria to do a trial. And Naeem mentioned that's roughly 5% of everybody he sees. And then there's the issue that Dr. Patil mentioned about educating the stigma in certain patient populations of a study or the perceived stigma and, and having to educate around that. Let me take it from a slightly different angle. If you look at where we were last year and the year before, and you go to clintrials.gov and you look up the number of trials that are currently registered to enroll patients, we're at a record number. The sheer volume of the patients required to fill those trials are beyond anything we've ever seen before. And there's a reason for that, right? So 2020, we had lots of incredibly positive data in early phase clinical trials. So now those 2A trials are progressing to 2B trials because there was positive momentum, positive data. And and when positive data comes, then 
venture capital and people that invest in that field tend to get a little more excited about it. And so when these companies say, look, we need to go raise more capital to do a larger phase 2B paired liver biopsy study, it's easier for them to get that capital. And then when you marry that with the fact that the FDA is becoming a little bit more clear on the fact that the goalposts haven't moved, that digital slides are acceptable, and they're willing to work with you on histopathologic interpretation of those slides to try to minimize some of the inter-observer variability and some of the complexities of sampling and that sort of thing. There's a clear sense of momentum coming back in in 2021, at least in my opinion. So that's contributing to more studies. And the complexity of these studies is becoming more complex because if you think back to GenFit and Intercept, when they first launched their phase three trials, we didn't have MRI PDFF built into those trials. So now when you look at trials that are in paired liver biopsy phase 2B or that are in phase 3 or that are headed into an adaptive 2B3 or quite frankly straight into a 3, we have three gates we have to go through. So just remember what Naeem and, 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 and Rashmi said. It's hard to find them. Then when you find them and you bring them in, you have to consent them. Then you get lab work. Then you send them for an MRI. Then you send them for a liver biopsy. And at every gate, they can screen fail. And so it's really important for sponsors to understand that we know there's a very finite screen fail rate around MRI PDFF. We can use CAP from FibroScan to predict what the screen fail rate will be if you set the PDFF cutoff at 8% or you set it at 10%. It's going to be roughly around 20% is your screen fail rate. We know that if you highly select people for liver biopsy, you know, you have a couple metabolic syndrome components, you pick a, an AST that's at a certain level, you pick a FibroScan KPA that's at a certain level, you use FAST, you use MAST, you use whatever you've got in your toolbox as a pre-screen strategy to find the right patients to enroll in a study. Your best pathologic interpretation will screen fail slightly more than a third of those patients. That's the best case scenario. And, and so historically what we've seen, whether it's Intercept, GenFit, the, the kind of the landmark phase three trials that were done, or any of the ones that come after that, we're screen failing about a quarter of patients on consent or labs, 20% on MRI, and 30 to 40 percent on labs, giving you a cumulative screen fail rate of between 70 and 80 percent. So that's added on top of the fact that 80 to 95 percent of people aren't going to do a study or don't qualify for a study based on initial pre-screen criteria. So the funnel is getting very, it starts big, but it narrows down very quickly into what qualifies. That gets us to a discussion about how do we design trials? And we'll talk about that in a minute to try to help mitigate some of those factors. So Stephen, let me do a simple piece of math and see if I understand all this right. You have 10,000 patients. Naeem described the process by which that goes down to 500. Are you then saying that uh, two thirds, three quarters of those are gonna screen fail out? Yes. So fundamentally for every 10,000 patients I've got, if I'm lucky, I might be able to get 100 of them, 150 of them actually to some kind of a trial. Yeah. I think that's accurate, Roger. You know, to randomization, I think that's what we get about 150 out of the patients we see on a yearly basis. Okay. so. So, Stephen, a couple of months ago, in a slightly different context, you threw out the idea that there were 11,000 patients who were going to need histology, who were going to need biopsy to fulfill what was a clinical clinical If I remember the number correctly, that's right. That's right. But let me tag on to something very important that Naeem just said. Even our biggest and best centers for NASH clinical trial enrollment get super excited if we can put 150 randomized patients into trials in a year. That's the biggest 
of the best, right? So you, you, you can multiply that number by the number of legitimate clinical trial sites that know what they're doing in NASH. And I don't say that lightly, and I hope people don't take offense at that. Enrolling a NASH clinical trial is not easy to do. You can't just throw a shingle out there and say, hey, I did a diabetic trial. I'm now ready to do a NASH study. Bring it on. It's incredibly hard to do a NASH trial. And it, it's interesting when I talk to CROs, which are the intermediary between a sponsor and a site, usually, they talk about all these sites. And, 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 and my first comment is, okay, well, we're going to build in a pre-screen strategy using FibroScan and some lab tests to really super select patients. I think that's critical for any trial because it's not right to send everybody to liver biopsy. If we can identify with a high degree of negative predictive value, those that aren't going to qualify. And it, it, so it's very pragmatic that we set up some of these rules. And so then I hear the CRO say, well, we can't do that because a lot of sites don't have FibroScan. My initial reaction to that has now been backed up by data is if you don't have a FibroScan at a NASH clinical research trial institution, you don't do very many NASH clinical trials. And you're probably not the site that should be doing a trial for a sponsor. If I'm a sponsor and I have to go pick a set of sites to enroll my trial, obviously we all want the best. We want the guys that have been doing this day in and day out that know the complexities of clinical trial enrollment, that know how to identify patients, that, that know how to help them understand their disease and get through a trial. Not just enroll in a trial, but remember these trials are anywhere from 12 weeks to 18 months in duration. And and keeping them on the trial and getting them to that second liver biopsy is critically important. And so that means every month we have to build that expectation. We call it in the military expectation management. You have to always let your patients know what's coming next. And particularly for another liver biopsy, that they don't get to the eight-month nine month, 12 month, and then drop out of the trial. So again, that's really, really important what Naeem said about even the best centers. This is the max number of patients that they can put in and it falls off after that. So I want to come back to the best center idea, but I'm, I'm still a little bit stuck on the math because if you've got five, six million patients and that's the total national population and you can get, what if you say 50 out of 10,000, that's a half a percent. And you could only a half a percent of those, if everything is managed well, will wind up being... Mass off a little bit, Roger. So, so Naeem's counting fatty liver patients. He's not okay. counting patients because you know people that come in to see us are not already pre-identified as highly selective for at-risk NASH. These are people walking in the door with an ALT that may be a slightly high or an imaging study that showed fat or whatever. So look at it from that perspective. It's more like the NAFLD pool and you're whittling. Down. Okay, so then there there are enough patients to get it done. You just have to be very careful and very precise about getting the right patient to the right trial and managed well throughout the process. Yes. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. We're releasing two more conversations from this episode, and we'll release our next full episode on Wednesday, February 18th. I hope you'll enjoy the conversations and join us then. Until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.